right, welcome back into the Lake Show here on The Good Neighbor. Gouging is a problem right now. I think more than people want to acknowledge and bring up. And look, it's it's one thing to have a business model of making money if you're a company or a corporation, but taking advantage of hardworking Americans just isn't right. Well, there's a story with regards to music venues that's kind of blowing up here locally. And I think that, quite honestly, when we talk about music venues and the acts that perform at music venues and the merchandise sales, if any venue out there is going beyond 10 to 15% in terms of getting the cut out of the merchandise sales, I think that's too much. If you're going more than 10 to 15%, I, th- I think that that's too much. And the reason why this is in the news is because of the Minneapolis Armory, which I'll be there this weekend, right, for, for the Showtime boxing fights. The headline is, with, with the uh, Star Tribune, Minneapolis Armory faces backlash for taking 25% cut of bands' merchandise sales. They had a headliner this past Saturday, Falling in Reverse, which is a band that I'm not too familiar with. But they're uh, their frontman, Ronnie Racky, that's his name. He had this to say performing over the weekend at the Armory with regards to the uh, the merchandise sales and the Armory going in on taking their cut. If you haven't noticed that the, there is no none of our merch in the back, and I want to let you guys know something. It has nothing to do with the radio station. It has to do with this venue. This venue is trying to charge us 25% of our fees. We had to pay this venue. This venue, hold on. So what that would mean is we would have to charge you guys way more to even make any money. So what I did was, f*** them. F*** that. We're not paying you guys. That's f***ed up. If you guys want our t-shirts, you can go online and pick them up. We'll probably lose a little bit of money from doing this. But I ain't I ain't doing that. I'm not selling my merch to give 25% of this venue. you guys. Wow, that's pretty aggressive. That is pretty aggressive. Okay? And, and, and let me say this. I am somebody that, that I frequent the armory. Um, I actually know um, the people at the armory. Okay, so it's not like I don't know necessarily who he's talking (laughs) to. Right. But but I'll say that this is just in general. To me, this isn't necessarily about the armory. This is just, you know, whatever the venue is. I don't care if it's the X. I don't care if it's Target Center, wherever. I think that 25 percent is a little bit much. I I think that's pretty a little little steep. Now, 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 to be fair, and, and this is not me going after any one venue. This is just me talking in generalizing, okay, I, and let me repeat, I think that 25% is, is is steep. It sounds like, though, that's not that far off from the standard from which venues will charge bands when you're talking about merchandise. Now, now let me read the statement from the representatives of the Armory. They said that the 25% cut was part of the contract negotiation with the band's agents, and, quote, the cost associated with the service of selling it. Livable wages for the local vendors who set up, sell, and are responsible for the inventory, materials, infrastructure, and logistics. The Armory's statement also reads, as an independent venue, 
We worked extremely hard at keeping our deals with artists honest, fair, and transparent throughout the entire show process. So it doesn't sound like this was something that the band falling in reverse didn't know about beforehand, right? But on the surface, I do think that 25% is aggressive. Because when we're talking about um, touring and stuff like that, that is a big part of where bands and artists make money. Yes. This whole idea about streaming and stuff like that, artists are making a lot of money off the streaming. they they got to do something about streaming. I'm with Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg has stated, and he's if you don't go do a Google search, there's a comment out there from from um, in an interview that Snoop talks about something about he had like a billion streams or something of that effect, and it equated to forty five thousand dollars. That, that's ridiculous. That that is insane. That is nothing. Streaming is getting over on artists. My point is is that we talk about artists making money. And going out touring, the merch sales are part of that. So now I give you a, a perfect example. When I went this past July to um, the Fine Line to see one of my favorite hip hop groups, Souls of Mischief, because it's the 50th year uh, anniversary of, of, of hip hop, right? Souls of Mischief out of Oakland, California, came to town. They're at the Fine Line. When I bought a Souls of Mischief t shirt, I literally made the purchase with one of the lead rappers from the group. It wasn't awesome. It wasn't. It was not anybody working for First Avenue or the final. I actually uh, uh, swiped my card with Tajay from Souls of Mischief. And he gave me my merchandise. And we talked because he had came on the show. I talked to him. We came yeah. on the show. We did the interview. It was super cool because there's people that, that I knew that I went to college with that knew him, whatever. And so that was that. But that's not typically the case. Like when you go to a concert at Target Center, like Nas and, Nas and the Wu-Tang Clan, they're not selling me the merch. Like the Target Centers. So I get that the Target Center needs to get their cut. I get that whoever, whether it's Live Nation, I get that. But 25% seems aggressive to me. And if you'd like to weigh in, 651-461-9226. And, you know, you were talking about Live Nation. They announced that they wouldn't take any money from any artists through the end of the year. Of 2023, yes. Yeah, through the end of of 2023. So that's great. A, A lot of these... You know, I don't even want to call them smaller bands, smaller artists, performers, right? I'll go across the board that a lot of this money they're paying for the merchandising, all of that is coming out of pocket. Like a lot of this is is coming. They don't have a benefactor. So this is all coming from them. So they're using their resources to try and, and manufacture more merchandise and whatnot for their for their fans. So I understand with taking a cut, but if you hear just around the industry that 10 to 20% is standard, anything above that, even if it's 5%, it just seems like if you're selling a significant amount of merch, like that's that's all gonna add up. Let me say this with regards to gouging, okay? And specifically, we're talking about music venues and we're talking about merchandise. This is something that I just have a practice of. I typically don't go to concerts and buy merch. I don't. Yeah, I don't either. 
I don't either. You know what I do? I go to the band's website, and I'll get my merch directly from them. When I mm-hmm. went to the the uh, uh, New York State of Mind tour with Nas and De La Soul and, um, and Wu-Tang Clan, I was rocking a De La Soul hoodie. You know where I got that hoodie from? I got it Their directly website? from De La Soul. Okay. So, yeah. so that's because typically when you go to a venue, you're, I mean, they're upcharging so much. And, and I, I will look, I don't know that much about this group specifically because I'm not f- too familiar with their, with their, uh, with their music falling mm-hmm. in reverse. But I will say this I, I, I do think that it's fair for the front man for that group for him to let the people know that. You know what? I don't necessarily want to just beat you guys over the head with these enormous prices because that's what we have to do. Yeah, everything is going to reflect back, back down. on that band. Yes. Because yes. you don't want somebody else, the way that somebody else conducts business, you don't want that to reflect poorly on you. And if you don't say anything, the natural reaction for fans is going to be, well, why aren't you selling any merchandise? Or why is your merchandise so incredibly expensive. Now, that I don't typically see, though. Whenever I go to a concert, yeah. you typically see merch. I've never seen a dispute like this, though. In the, in, Where in, they don't even put out the merch. Yeah, they, they didn't have merch. Yeah, and, and I, you know, and I, I can kind of respect that because, they're, I mean, these individuals, their fans are already spending the, the money for the tickets. You know, they may already have T-shirts. They may already have the music. They may already, ha- you know, be connected to the band, but then you know when you go to an event, like the merchandise prices are going to be hiked up, no matter what. And and kind I think of, there's an expectation you're going to pay a little bit more. Yeah, I I, th- I think there is, no matter what you go to, whether it's a sporting event, a, a concert, a, a theater performance, whatever, you know that you're going to pay more when you're there. But, but at the same time, if if it's going directly to the artist. I don't have a problem with that. Now I don't. Now I disagree with you on that. I don't expect to pay more at the team store if I'm going to a Timberwolves game. I don't. Really? No, I don't. Okay. See, I, I always expect to pay more when I'm going to a game. Like if I'm going to go to Target Field, I expect to pay more at the Twins Clubhouse. Or if why? I, huh? Well, because you're there, you're in the stadium. Like being. What's the difference? It's it's a it's a team store. It it is, but at the same time, a, a lot of times you see these prices when you're at the event are just always a little bit higher. I don't think that that I, we can take calls on this. I disagree. I don't think that I don't think that should be the expectation. This is the it, only this yeah. is the only expectation that I have. If I go to a Wolves game, if I go to a Vikings game, or if I go to a, a Minnesota Wild uh, game, this is the only the only expectation that I have in terms of sports merchandise is this. Plain and simple. If it's something that is particular to the team store that I can't get anywhere else, then that's fine. Then I'll pay a little extra. But if it's something I can easily go get online, why should I be paying more just because I'm there? That makes no sense. You, you you shouldn't, but I feel like you're playing into that emotion. Like you're there. You're you're excited to see this event. That's so. gouging. That's gouging. It, it is, it, but I mean, it's it's, it's, it's not a, fair. That's not right. It's not, It's not fair. It's not right. But to me, it's like, you know, I could pay $25 online for something or I'm going to pay $30 when I'm there at the event. It's like that extra $5, whatever. It's like. But why should I, why should I, if I go to a gopher game, mm-hmm. it, why should I have to pay $5 more when I've purchased for a damn ticket? I, I paid for parking. That, that just doesn't make any sense to me. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that no, makes it, no sense to me. Yeah. That, that's gouging. 
if if there's something particular to the team store, whatever the venue is, college or professional, then I'm mm-hmm. all for it. I totally get that. There are certain times you go to you go to these professional ballparks. There's team fitted hats that you can't get online. I totally get that. Or if they, what do they call it? The hockey lodge. Yeah, the hockey the, lodge. The, the X, yeah. If there's stuff that's particular to the hockey lodge, I totally mm-hmm. get that, and I'm more than willing to pay extra for it. But I don't care. I, if, if if there's something that I can get online, I don't think it's right for for them to because all you're doing is trying to take advantage of the consumer because they're on your property. Mm, I don't think that's fair. Six five one four six one nine two two six. Coming up next, John Anderson. He has uh, announced that he will be retiring at the end of the 2024 season for Golden Gopher baseball. We get into that next year on the Lake Show. All right, welcome back to the Lake Show News Talk 830-WCCO. Text line 651-461-9226. Cities 1 Plumbing Talk in text line from the 763. A lot of people buy the stuff, no matter the price, just to commemorate an event and a night out, which I get. I just, I, I'm not a big believer in upcharging on stuff that you can buy online. Stuff that's specific to, like, for instance, if somebody comes and they're doing um, a concert – at Target Field, mm-hmm. yeah, that's unique. Like the Foo Fighters, that's unique. But but if the, if there's something that you can only get at Target Field, I totally get that. But if it's something that you can find on Fanat, uh, Fanatics or all the different websites, yeah. I, I'm not necessarily for that. Now, now with regards to the the um, the concert stuff and the vending there, let's take a phone call from uh, James in Minneapolis, who's got some experience in uh, venue T-shirts. What's up, James? Hey guys, hey, hey, hey! Good to good to chat with you all. Appreciate the phone call. About concert I'm sorry. I said appreciate the phone call. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's an interesting business. Okay, so first of all, you know, most of these teachers in these venues now are forty, fifty bucks. You know, and they've got about five, six bucks in the raw cost of things at most. And here's what's going on: is they have a handful of big players that essentially are licensees for the Rolling Stone, for Foreigner, any of those big brands, Led Zeppelin. They have a fashion line that they put up for stores, uh-huh. and they have concert T-shirts is what they call them. Nobody else can print those T-shirts but them. And what they do is, is they're responsible for flying the merch out. They're responsible for management on site. You, you send them to the seller Target. They'll send a handful of people there. Uh, maybe it's even just two. And then they'll use local people to help vend them. But uh, they take the risk and the responsibility. They, they manage inventory levels. And there's a boatload of margin in there. So when you're buying something for 5 6 bucks, and you're uh, selling it for 40 or $50, you know, there's a, there's a lot of profit there. I just want to make people aware of that. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. And this is just, this is just your, your, your general opinion. All right? And we're not going to talk about specific uh, – uh, places, right? This is across the board, James, in general, with regards to concert venues. What do you think is a reasonable percentage that the venue should get? It depends on what services they're doing. So if they're providing staff and labor, I think you got to bill that out at an hourly, and it becomes how many people times how many hours, and that becomes, uh, you know, a, a fee, an expense. And then I would say give them 10% of the merch, um, as a as an overall writer, so uh, if I'm the band and I'm selling the T-shirts, well, it's not the band that's typically selling them. They've got an entity representing their 
their van and they own the rights to license all that, you know, charge them whatever it is the going rate per hour per person for the time, you know, and then setting it up and bringing it back and, and repackaging it and then shipping it on to the next one. Cause that's the way that those things work. Yeah. Um, so I would say, I would say, I mean, that way you, you don't take a huge gouge. It's like, how many people are we going to need? How many are we, what's the dollar amount we're going to pay? Is it 20 bucks an hour so they can have livable wages? You know, is it uh, 25 bucks an hour? What is it? Yeah. And then I'd say give them 10%, 10%. And 10% would be a, that's a pretty fat number still after you paid all the expenses. Maybe it's only five or six or seven. You know, I'd have to look at the math depending on the volume. But does what I'm making, what I'm saying makes sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and thanks for the phone call from James in Minneapolis. I totally, I totally get all of that. I, that that was a very informative uh, phone call. I, I appreciate I, it. I love that. I'm see to to me. I'm a geek for things like that, where you're talking about profit margins and you know what your you know your raw cost for the expenses and everything. So I, I always find things like this fascinating to find out. Yeah, exactly. Where is that break even point for certain individuals, and you know who's becoming the fatter of the cat, so to speak. So. Yeah. That, yeah, that was that was a great call, James. I appreciate you chiming in there. I don't think that we'll ever see a run at the University of Minnesota in terms of a head coach in the amount of mm. years that they've been at the U like we've seen with head baseball coach John Anderson. I just don't think that we're going to see Man. it anymore. The longest tenured coach in the history of golf athletics, John Anderson, is going to retire at the end of the 2024 baseball season. Anderson will have been the head coach for 43 Mm. seasons at Minnesota. That's mind-blowing to me. I need the mind-blowing emoji. (laughs) I'm dead serious. I'm 50. He's been the head coach at the U since 1974. It's it's incredible. You know, I mean, 14 – no, he joined as a player. He, he in joined 74. as a player in seventy four. I think uh, he's been coaching my, since seventy nine. Yeah, my bad. Yep. Okay, F- I'm bad with math. No, that's <laughs> math is hard. That's why we're in radio. Okay. With his time spent as a player on the team, student assistant coach, mm-hmm. grad assistant, assistant coach, he's been at the U for forty nine years. When he retires, that's just that's it, remarkable. It, dude. it is an incredible run for we call him fourteen. That's that's how everybody around the program calls him. Fourteen. It's not John. It's not Coach Anderson. It's, that, it's just hey, fourteen, because that's his jersey number. You know, when I was working with the University of Minnesota baseball team, you know, for you know several years in the early two thousands, I had a chance to get to know him, and he is one of the smartest, sharpest, just no nonsense dudes that you could ever get to know. And the the success of the baseball program, I feel like it doesn't get enough recognition in this market as it should. He's got the most Big t- uh, Big Ten wins. He's the winningest baseball coach in history of the Big Ten? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, 11 Big Ten titles, 10 Big Ten tournament championships, 18 NCAA tournaments. Yeah, I mean, think about all the players as well that he has churned out over the years. Absolutely incredible run for 14. And this is why I love the non-revenue sports 
because you get to see stories like this. This will never, ever be duplicated. I mean, he was one of a kind. And 14, man, my my hat's off to you. My hat is off to you. An incredible man, an incredible coach, an incredible mentor. And, I mean, it's just, it's one thing to be, to have longevity, but it's another thing to have longevity and all the success if you guys aren't familiar with the University of Minnesota baseball, the Gopher baseball program, just look at, just Google the history and all of the players that they have churned out. They've been and, good players, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. So kudos 14. Enjoy your retirement. All right, coming up next, we'll take a look at the local weather. And then there's an idea that was thrown out there earlier today uh, via the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Ideas for getting more folks to downtown Minneapolis. There's one aspect or one idea that I just think is a bad one that I must address, and we do that next year on The Lake Show. Not a smart idea. I don't think that the idea of having a 24-hour entertainment district in downtown Minneapolis is a good one. I think that right now, specifically, I think it's ridiculous. Plain and simple. Why, you may ask? Because it's come up, how can you revamp downtown Minneapolis? They talked about the hybrid office, workspace stuff, living situation. Specifically, the part that was mentioned in the paper about this, about entertainment in the 24-hour aspect of it. And I'm not saying, <laughs> and me and Jason DeRush were talking about this off here. We're not talking about or envisioning like all of a sudden downtown Minneapolis is going to turn into Las Vegas, right? We're not talking about Nicollet Mall is going to be. Uh, it's a strip. You know, it's, it's going to be Times Square or anything <laughs> like that. But I think that we need to pump the brakes specifically on the idea or one. There's many ideas that need to be thrown out there. We need to be fleshing all of this out, all right, in terms of how we're going to revitalize downtown Minneapolis. But one of the ideas and thoughts about specifically looking at the Nicollet area and there being a 24-hour entertainment district, I, I don't think that's realistic. And I actually think the idea doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We don't have enough police for this to be a thing. And I don't think that this is a legit, feasible thing to pull off until we get the numbers up. Not only the last couple of years have we said we need more police officers, we've lost police officers. We haven't, we haven't actually added to the tally. So how can we actually think that this is going to be a thing, a realistic thing, if we don't have enough police, and I'm all for revitalizing downtown Minneapolis. We are here yes. every day. We are here every day, okay? But to think that this is something that's realistic, I'm not buying that. Like, we're not close to this being a real thing. No, I, I feel like we're trying to go to step 10 when we're maybe at step two because, you know, 
downtown Minneapolis has taken a lot of hits over the past four years. And it is a struggle to try and get it back to where it was before. Now, it may never get back to the pre-pandemic levels with, you know, empty office buildings and, you know, certain businesses are not requiring people to come back downtown. But there is also, again, I, I keep going back to perception. If people are skeptical, and I'm not saying everybody, but there are some individuals that will not come downtown no matter what. Mm-hmm. If you're having a problem attracting people downtown during normal business hours or even into the early evening, I feel like trying to get something to bring them in those off hours, it's just not it's not feasible right now. As much as I would love to see it, it's not it's not a real it's it's not a realistic expectation right some, now. Some of this is reality versus perception. Let's just be honest and clear about that. Absolutely. Because me and Jason were talking earlier and he when we were talking off here about the perception from some people that or the demographic that want to go to like orchestra hall, right? Mm-hmm. Versus cause cause there's a lot of different things. And the demographics will be different for people that want to go club hopping or whatever, hang out in the North Loop, yep. versus those that, that want to go to sports That's events, true. Yeah. versus those that want to go to Orchestra Hall, right? If the numbers are down for Orchestra Hall or people that want to go to, to specific events there, why are the numbers drastically down? And this is just as an example for there. Is it the perceptions driving a lot of that? I would tend to think that it is. And and the reason why I was saying that to, to Jason is because Orchestra Hall, downtown Minneapolis. Do people actually understand or know where Orchestra Hall is? Probably it, not. It's not in a bad area. No, it's not. But, it, it's, it's, but literally it's downtown. It's literally. But, th- th- but that's what I'm saying. You got you got to go beyond the surface. You got to go deeper. It is literally a block away from the convention center. It is it is right across from all these other entities in downtown Minneapolis yeah. that don't have problems with crime. So so I guess my the point that I'm trying to make though is is that it's not by light rail. It's not like all these perceived places that are that are crime riddled and have issues and I'm not saying that 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 the light rail hasn't had its his its issues. They have. But it's not by that. It's I just don't we, we got we gotta dig deeper than just the perception of what's going on in downtown Minneapolis. But I, I could write you I, I could draw you a diagram of what downtown Minneapolis is and what people think downtown Minneapolis is. Like there are different parts of downtown, but a, it doesn't matter when you say downtown. It's, but it does. It's it's an it's an overarching like everything is under that umbrella. But it actually does though. That's that's what I'm saying. Perception versus reality. It actually does. If you cross over the river, if you go past the uh, the post the the post office here, mm-hmm. and you go over across the river where Northeast is, is yeah. that downtown Minneapolis? No. W- will some people regard that as downtown Minneapolis? Yes. Nicollet Island. That's a, that's but that's what I'm saying. Right. So, yeah. So, so we can't keep just lumping everything into. How do you change downtown. that? Though? How do you change that though? What do you mean? How you change it? How, how can you change 
you have to drill down on on what the reality is versus the perception of what it is. You can, I, I, I would look at and I would say that the convention center is downtown Minneapolis. But if you go, if you if you cross over a few blocks from the convention center and you cross over of ninety four, that's not downtown Minneapolis anymore. That's South Minneapolis. But the, the, I would say that the casual consumer is not going to know that the casual consumer is not going to do that. They're not going to look at the, the areas and say, okay, yeah, this is close to the convention center. This is here. They're going to say it's downtown. And I hear this about downtown. So if I'm going to do something, I'm going to get in, I'm going to get out. But that's my point, Chris perception versus reality. And you know what the difference is? Education. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's anybody out there that legitimately listens to this show or any show on any station in Minnesota that would refer to Lake Street as anything other than South Minneapolis. If somebody is referring to Lake Street as downtown, get a clue. Like that's just you know what I'm saying. So, so there's there's certain part of that's just education, man. Yeah, no, I I, I yeah I I agree. I mean, I've been banging this. I, I, lo- I love downtown. One of the reasons why I was excited to take this job is I've always been a fan of downtown Minneapolis. Like, there's just, there's, there was so much going on. Like, you could just walk and see all of the buildings, the high rise, the restaurant, just like the hustle and bustle. And I love being in the middle of that. And I really want that to come back. Because to me, when downtown Minneapolis is is hopping and there's a lot of things going on and there's just the diversity of people, it's it's a fantastic place to be. Let's get back to the the actual topic though, yeah, about yeah, the twenty yeah. four hour entertainment district. We're both on the same page. Yes, this is not realistic unless you get more cops. Correct. Yes. Yep. In, in terms of it being successful, in terms of people wanting to go there and be a part of this thing and feeling safe, I, you got to increase the numbers. And now, now in terms of the the number of people coming to downtown Minneapolis and working, I think that that is an issue too. And my friend David Fema, uh, the restaurateur, one of my best friends out there, he continues to bang home the point that he would like to see more corporations come back. And and I, I don't have an issue with him saying that publicly. He's been very um, outspoken about that. And I do think that if more corporations do come to downtown Minneapolis um, that want to be in downtown Minneapolis, I think it helps everything. In terms of forcing people back, I don't, I don't think that's a reality. I don't think you're going to be forcing corporations back against their will. I just don't think that's a thing. No, and as much as we would like to see it, but yeah, the, the bottom line is I think a lot of things that changed during the pandemic is these companies can – eliminate some of this overhead it's like well why are we going to pay for this office space why are we going to spend all of this extra money and this overhead when we can cut that and our productivity you know it might they i mean they do all this research so i mean they're a lot smarter than i am but at the end of the day every business is about a bottom line and if these companies are finding out that whatever work schedule that they're at be it at home the hybrid if it's going to work out more economically feasible for them, then they're absolutely going to do that regardless of what we want to see. Yep. All right, 651-461-9226.
We have headlines. That's up next here on The Lake Show. All right, let's not waste any time. Let's dive right into headlines here on The Lake Show. Christopher Tubbs, let's see what you have for the fine listening audience out there this evening. All right, let's get to it. H. Lake, Minnesota's new state flag took another step towards becoming reality. Yesterday, as the State Emblems Redesign Commission narrowed the field of options down to three. The final three options are far from the what they call the final, as the next step is for graphic designers to create additional mock-ups of the designs based on the modifications discussed by the commission Tuesday evening. Commission adopted the new state seal on Tuesday only after making a few adjustments. Those adjustments, including changing the color of the loon's eye to red, not including the year of the statehood, which was 1858, and removing the motto La Toile de Nord. Now, commission members approved adding... Uh, Minnesota Makache, which is Dakota for the uh, state where the state gets its name. It translates to land where the waters reflect the sky in Dakota. Commission is set to meet again on Friday with the hope of picking the new flag. Get back to me when we figure it out. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Seriously, we've been talking about this for a while. Is this... <sighs> this is the most I've ever talked about the state flag. Yes. I'm totally with you. Like, <laughs> and, after and, I'm not trying to be, and I'm not trying to be totally dismissive, no. but like we've talked about it so much here the last couple of months. I'm like, okay, I just want to see the final. Just get done with, you know, yes, just get yeah. done with it. Just get done with it. Hey, a pregnant Kentucky woman involved in a class action lawsuit challenging the state's two abortion bans has learned that her embryo no longer has cardiac activity. The woman identified as Jane Doe is the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit filed in the Jefferson County Circuit Court last week, which challenges the state's trigger law and six-week abortion ban because the government has denied her access to the care she needs. This according to the American Civil Liberties Union, they said in a news release. It marks the first time a pregnant woman in Kentucky has filed a lawsuit of this kind, ACLU of Kentucky spokesperson Angela Cooper said. Now, Jane Doe's attorney from the ACLU's Reproduction Freedom Project declined to say whether she will continue her legal fight after receiving the news about the lack of cardiac activity in the embryo. Quote, all we can say at this time is that Jane Doe sought an abortion in the Commonwealth, couldn't get one because of Kentucky's abortion ban. That hasn't changed, according to an ACLU spokesperson. Her embryo no longer has cardiac activity. Let her get the abortion. It's, It's as simple as that. Her embryo no longer has cardiac activity. It's as simple as that. Why are we being why are we being so harmful to women? Stop doing this. Stop trying to control people's bodies to disagree. It's as simple as that. At the end of it, at the end of that initial sentence right there, mm-hmm. the first line, her embryo has no no longer has cardiac activity, her attorney said. That's it. Get out her way. Yeah. Oh, it's irritating. I mean, the emotional and physical toll and the risk that it poses on her. I mean, it, it, it's not. It becomes harassment, man. It really does. Yeah, I, I, I get so many thoughts on that. Hey, Andre Brogher, the Emmy Award-winning actor who would master gritty drama for seven seasons on Homicide, Life in the Street, and the modern-day comedy uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Nine-Nine, has died at the age of 61. He died after a brief illness, his publicist said. No further details were given. Of course, he uh, played Detective Frank Pembleton, the lead role on Homicide, Life in the Street. 
Uh, and then he'd also, uh, it was based on the book by uh, David Simon, who'd go on to create The Wire, uh, show, of course, focused on the homicide unit of Baltimore. And then uh, he'd go on to play a very different kind of cop, very different kind of show, shifting to comedy. Captain Ray Holt on the Andy Samberg starring Brooklyn and Nine Nine that ran for eight seasons. 61 years old. Yeah, I saw it come across my feed yesterday evening and I was like, wow. I was blown away. I, I just, super talented person. Um, 61. Hey, man, that's young. 61 years young. Wow. Yeah, I, I really didn't watch Homicide Life on the Street, and I, I was kind of a loaded, late adapter to um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm-hmm. But after watching it, it's a really sharp show, and he absolutely was a big part of it. So Sad to see. Sad to see, yeah, at, uh, at 61 years old, too, man. That's, that is super young. Yeah, super sad news. All right, coming up next... Are you looking to give a pet as a gift over the holidays? Or there's something you should not do? We'll tell you what that is next here on The Lake Show.